next Sunday, March the 6th, uh, immediately after the morning service, we'll need a number of volunteers to help with the uh, re, sort of reorganization of the room, setting up tables, moving chairs, preparing everything for the uh, Chafer Conference, which begins uh, a week from tomorrow. That's a scary thought, isn't it, Jim? We have a, our, one of our missionaries here this morning, Jim Myers, just got back from, from uh, Brazil, where he's been the last two weeks, taught 50 hours down there, left Brazil about 10.30 p.m. last night. So if anybody gets caught snoring in the congregation this morning, we probably can know where it's coming from. And Jim did inform me just before I came in that uh, uh, Margaret, who is the primary translator that they have over in Kiev, is in the hospital, been in the hospital for a week with heart problems, and she may be coming home tomorrow uh, or the next day, but uh, we need to be in prayer for her and for her health. Uh, Also, uh, one other thing in relation to next Monday, lunch will be provided for those who stay to help, so you'll get a free lunch out of it anyway. Who, who really believes that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And then in two weeks, on March the 13th, uh, Daylight Savings Times begin, so we have to uh, spring forward, so we'll lose our uh, spring hour of sleep, and that's, uh, that's sort of all the announcements I have this morning. So we come together to worship the Lord. Our focus is to be upon Him be upon who he is, what he has done for us, that throughout history God has always dealt with fallen man in terms of grace, grace meaning unmerited favor. Our salvation is based upon grace because God is the only one who could truly and fully take care of the problem of sin. He is the one who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, that the penalty would be paid for on the cross, and therefore, as Colossians says, the certificate of debt against us was nailed to the cross. So we have have forensic or legal forgiveness for all members of the human race at the point of Christ's death on the cross. Nevertheless, we still have to individually have that applied to us through faith in Jesus Christ, and that occurs at the moment that we believe that's applied to us, and we, are, we receive a second category of forgiveness at that point that applies to us positionally in Christ. But then we still commit sin. And whenever we commit sin, that causes a breach in our relationship with God. Our fellowship with him is no longer enjoyed. The ongoing positive sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit uh, ceases and his role shifts from producing growth to uh, making us aware of our sin and our need to get back in fellowship. Scripture teaches that we are to worship by means of the Spirit, so we must be walking by means of the Spirit in fellowship for our worship to have any value. So when we sin and we're out of fellowship and we've ceased walking by the Spirit, then we need to confess our sin uh, to God the Father, and we receive our third category of forgiveness, which is uh, cleansing from all sin, 
even the sin that was not mentioned. We're forgiven for all sin and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And at that point, we're restored to fellowship. So we always begin each service with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to uh, worship the Lord as a body of believers this morning. Then I will open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we are so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that in your love you have provided a perfect salvation for us, a salvation that is complete, a salvation that is full, a salvation that took care of every sin in human history so that the issue would no longer be our sin, but the issue would be faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for this congregation, for the way you are working in the lives of each person in this congregation as you are moving us forward in our spiritual growth for the desire of so many to learn your word for we are reminded that Jesus said that we are to be sanctified by means of truth and it is the study of your word that is the highest form of worship and it is that which the Holy Spirit uses to produce in us spiritual growth and spiritual advance. Father we are thankful that uh, Jim returned safely We're thankful for his ministry down in Brazil. We pray that uh, he will be able to get some rest and recover some as he prepares for the conference next week. We're also reminded to pray for uh, Margaret and her health uh, over in Kiev. Now, Father, we pray that this time together will be uh, profitable spiritually for us as we focus upon you and upon what you've done for us and as we not only uh, sing praises to you but as we study your word that our focus will be upon you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 56. Psalm 56, which is a psalm of trust. According to the inscription, it was written to the chief musician, set to the silent dove in distant lands, a miktam of David, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity and anger cast down thy peoples, O God? You number my wanderings, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, for God is because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling? That I might walk before God 
in the light of the living. Giving is a great privilege of every believer and part of our worship to God. Giving is not something we do in order to somehow gain God's blessing or manipulate his favor, but giving in the scripture is a way in which we express our gratitude to God as well as our support for the local church and our support for missions. Giving is based on each individual's own desire, commitment in these particular areas. And as Scripture says, uh, every man is supposed to give according to his own, uh, according to how God has blessed him, and it is a responsibility of every believer in order to uh, be a part of the local church and support the work of the local ministry. Scripture says, as every man purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the way you have provided for us in many, many ways, the way you have uh, supplied our every need. Scripture says that you've given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, Father, we give these gifts as a token of our appreciation for you, as our desire to support this local church and this ministry. And, Father, we pray that you would bless these gifts in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we have your word, that it is in your word that you have objectively revealed yourself to us, your plan and purpose for our lives, and it is as we study your word that we become aware of who you are. We learn of all of your attributes. We learn of your grace. We learn of the plan of salvation. We learn how to grow and mature as believers. And now, Father, as we continue our study in Colossians today, we pray that we might be ever more encouraged to pray as a vital part of our spiritual life and our fellowship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We began to cover verse 3 last time, focusing on Paul's prayers, that in the epistles of Paul, He usually begins with a prayer in seven of his 13 epistles. He begins with a prayer related to thankfulness. In most of them, 
he prays with somebody who he mentions in the opening part of the epistle. If Timothy is with him or Silas or one of the others, then he includes them within his, uh, within his opening prayer. In other epistles, he is alone and he simply uses the first person singular. I give thanks when I pray and as often as I pray to God. And so we see this distinction. We, I stressed the importance last time in prayer of uh, not just praying alone, but this also stresses and emphasizes the importance of praying with others, whether it's praying with uh, your spouse, praying with your family, praying um, at church, praying, coming to prayer meeting, things of those nature is an emphasis on uh, prayer that goes beyond just individual uh, individual prayer. So Paul begins, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now the main verb here is the verb of karsto, which is the verb for thankfulness and expressing uh, gratitude. And this is your primary verb. The reason I stress this is because as we get into this particular, uh, this particular verse and the ones following it, if you note your, uh, in your, in the, your scripture in the translation in front of you that verses three, four, five, and six are, depending on the translation, are all part of the same Sentence. So it's one of those wonderful convoluted uh, stru- sentence structures that the Apostle Paul is known for, and it takes a little time sometime to work your way through uh, what he is saying and what goes with what part of speech. And there's uh, certainly not a whole lot of consensus among some of those who write regarding this. So it's important for us to understand a little bit about grammar now and then just so we can put the pieces together in their right structure. Paul starts off with this expression of gratitude. We give thanks. Now this is, as I pointed out at the end last last time, something that we frequently see in the Pauline epistles. And I encourage you to pay attention as we went through the various uh, introductory prayers in Paul's epistles to what Paul was thankful for. Because so often I think that in our lives we are thankful for certain circumstances, we're thankful for certain people, but rarely I think do we really focus on the same things that the writers of Scripture focus on when they express their gratitude. And so when we look at these prayers and we see what what Paul was thankful for, then we see that that is the kind of thing that we should uh, be focusing on. Those are the priorities in our life, and that should be a part of what we express in our gratitude to God. And I encouraged you at the end of the class last time, at the end of the service last time, to go home this week and to look at various psalms, to look at various uh, uh, thankful uh, songs of gratitude, psalms of gratitude, some are individual psalms of uh, thankfulness. Others were communal or, or referring to the nation of Israel, uh, communal songs of gratitude, and to take a look at what those songs expressed gratitude for 
uh, toward God so that you would be able to then have that impact your prayer. So let's have a test, and I'll call on somebody and see uh, what you wrote down. Just thought I'd see if anybody was listening this morning. But that is something that I encourage you to do if you have not done that yet. So we see from these prayers something along the lines of these three particular verses that I closed with last time to give us a sample of what Paul was grateful for. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3, in his salutation to uh, the Thessalonians, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. So he is focusing not on, in this verse, not on their justification faith, that is the faith that they expressed initially to become uh, uh, become saved, to become justified, their faith in Christ, but this is their Christian life faith, faith rest drill, we sometimes use that terminology. That is the faith that is part of our ongoing Christian experience and is essential to our Christian growth. And so he commends them because their faith continues to grow. They are increasingly uh, stretched to trust God in the circumstances of life. So he expresses his gratitude for that and also for the love of every one of you, uh, that the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So we see this connection between faith and love, which is seen in the next verse as well, or in Ephesians 1.15, where Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints. So again, he is emphasizing their faith and their love for all the saints. Now, it is often our initial reaction to look at a phrase like faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, well, that must refer to salvation faith, to justification faith, phase one. But that's not necessarily the case. I think the phrase is ambiguous enough to, of course, include that. But if we look at the church to whom Paul is writing, he knows that they are already justified, and so the context would indicate that what he has in mind is more likely gratitude for their ongoing faith, their faith in terms of their Christian life and their Christian walk. And so he's expressing thankfulness for their ongoing faith uh, in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints, which is an application of their uh, what they are learning as they are studying the word and a reflection upon uh, the love that is produced as part of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, according to Galatians chapter 5, verses 21 and following. He says uh, in Philemon, uh, verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward uh, the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And again, he is expressing this uh, in terms of not just justification faith, but the context indicates that he's talking about their faith in terms of their spiritual walk, their spiritual growth, their spiritual advance. Now, when we come to our verse here in Colossians 1, uh, 3 and 4, we read the initial phrase, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ 
And then after that, we have this uh, participle in English, praying always for you. Now, this is where we begin to get into some of the little grammatical uh, difficulties in this verse, and that is how does this adverb always relate to the sentence structure? Because the word order in the Greek isn't the same as the word order in the English. And always as an adverb is most likely going to modify the main verb, which is the, the verb to give thanks, in which case it would be translated, we always give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we have to address the second question, and that is, uh, where does this next phrase for you go? Does it go in the beginning, we always give thanks for you to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, and then when we pray, because the participle there should be understood in a temporal sense, so uh, one option would be we always give thanks for you, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray. And then another way that we could look at this would be we always give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So where do these things fit? And it takes a little time to work your way through that. And so I put together, put up on the chart here three, the three options so that we can learn a little bit about how to think through this structure. The first option is to put the always and the concerning you in relation, put both of those terms in relation to the main verb of giving thanks, which would read, we always give thanks to God concerning you when we pray. The problem I see with that is that this implies that every time Paul prays, he would be saying that he gives thanks to the Colossians. And I would doubt that that would be possible, that every time I pray, that I would always give thanks for every church. Um, so I don't think that Paul is putting it quite that way. The second option is to put only the always in, relate, in, in the first part as a modifier of giving thanks and leaving the for you at the end. This would read, we always give thanks to God when we pray for you. That would imply that whenever Paul prayed for the Colossian church, that he always gave thanks to them. That seems to me to be a more realistic option. The third option leaves the always and the for you as modifiers of the participle. That would then read, we give thanks to God always praying for you, or when we uh, yes, always praying for you or when we always pray for you. And that, again, would indicate that Paul was always praying for the Colossians. This is similar to the same problem we have in the first option. So this is sort of how you work your way through some of these grammatical problems. And the reason I put each of these translations up here is because depending on the English translation you have, uh, you will have one of those three in your English translation. So I think that the most likely option, which is the one that is uh, actually chosen by the uh, majority of commentators and translators, is the second option, that what Paul is saying is that uh, he always gives thanks to God when he is praying for the uh, Colossian church. He makes thankfulness and his gratitude for them a focus. 
And it's very important for us to recognize that gratitude should be a focus. As I pointed out last time in going through a number of the passages in Scripture, focusing on thankfulness, that we're to be thankful for all things. And Paul frequently, usually expresses something that he is thankful for in each salutation. In contrast, the pagans in Romans 1, uh, 18 and following are under judgment because they have not been grateful to God for what he has done, and so they are characterized by ingratitude. And I pointed out that uh, it is the basic orientation of arrogance to be self-absorbed and therefore uh, an ingrate. And we all fall into that category at various times where we fail to be truly thankful and grateful for what we have because we're too focused on the fact that we don't get things the way we want them or when we want them. And rather than recognizing that God is in control and being thankful for what God has given us, we're focusing on the fact that we didn't get it our way. So whenever we are recognized in gratitude, we should be aware of the fact that that is a sin and that we should be also bringing that before the Lord in terms of confession. As we look at that, the, this prayer that extends down through verse uh, 14, we, re, we I need to get an orientation, an introduction to prayer, and that there are four basic ca- categories of prayer, four different kinds of prayer, and we can put them all together in one prayer, but sometimes we don't uh, have all of them at the same time in, in one particular prayer. The first is a prayer of confession. Prayer of confession is when we admit or acknowledge our sin to God for the purpose of forgiveness and cleansing of sin so that we will be in fellowship and we can return to a walk in the light, walk by the Spirit, and abiding in Christ, three terms that the Scriptures use to refer to basically the same thing. A second kind of prayer is a prayer of adoration or praise. This is a focus on God, of, on who he is, and expressing our love and devotion to him. Often, uh, if you look at the Psalms, you will see that the writer of the Psalms in a praise psalm will focus on some aspect of God's character and then relate that to specific uh, situations or circumstances. That often will lead then within those praise psalms to a uh, prayer or of thanksgiving, gratitude for the fact that God is who he is and that he has acted in the life of the psalmist the way he has. And so when we focus on who God is, then the details of life and the circumstances of life that we encounter on a daily basis that so easily get us off the tracks and our spiritual life go out of focus and life gets there's a return to order and a return to balance in terms of how we look at life. We recognize that it's all about God, it's not all about me, and that we need to be back in fellowship and oriented to God's plan and purposes. The fourth element is supplication, a term that in English means to make a request on the basis of humility. And there are two ways in which we make supplication to God, that we bring requests before God's throne. There are those that refer to other people and those that are related to our own lives. When we pray for other people, that is called intercession. When we pray for 
Ourself, we refer to that as petition. So we see these four basic categories, which we can cover in the acronym of CATS, C-A-T-S, Confession, Adoration, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Now, Paul says in verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, recognition that last time we observed that in all of Paul's prayers, he addresses them not to the Son, not to the Holy Spirit, but they are addressed to God the Father. It is God the Father as the one to whom we should always pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our high priest, and he also serves as the one who intercedes for us. We're told in Romans 8 that it is the Holy Spirit who also intercedes for us. We do not pray to an intercessor to pray for us. We have direct access to God the Father and to his throne on the basis of Jesus Christ's high priestly work and on the basis of the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, we direct our prayers to God the Father. So we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We always give thanks, corrected translation, we always give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And then in verse 4, we learn the reason for that prayer. Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Now, when in the English translation here from the New King James Version, we have, uh, we have these three words that actually translate one word in the Greek, since we heard. The English word sense is a word that is chosen in order to express uh, something of a causal relationship between this statement and the statement he has made in verse 3. And there, it is an adverbial participle uh, indicating cause, and that the reason that motivates the prayer is the fact that Paul has received a report on the spiritual condition of the believers in Colossae, and because he has heard good things about their spiritual life and their spiritual growth and their desire to serve the Lord, then he is expressing uh, thanks for that. So this could be translated, we, uh, we always give thanks when we pray for you, and we, we could tie this back to the main verb, we always give thanks because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and your love for all the saints. So he focuses here on two two aspects of the Christian life, faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. These are two, uh, two virtues in the Christian life that are often linked together, and they describe the maturation of believers. Believers who are young believers have a small immature capacity for love. Often uh, young believers express their love for God. It is an expression of their gratitude to God because they are saved, but it is a limited love because there is limited understanding of God and limited understanding of his grace. We all know and have experienced either in our own lives or in the lives of our family uh, young children who are two or three or four years of age who express their love to their mommy and daddy. 
But the love of a two- or three-year-old towards their parents is quite a bit different from the love of a 16- or 17-year-old, and that is quite different from the love of a 30- or 35-year-old for their parents because as we grow and mature and we come to understand and appreciate uh, who our parents are and all that they have done for us, then our love uh, deepens and strengthens, and we have a mature understanding of love, and that is true in the Christian life as well. The love that a young new believer has for the Lord is a love that is motivated by the fact that he has been rescued from eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, eternal punishment. But the love of a mature believer is going to be quite different. The love of a young believer may be a little more emotional, uh, depending on the circumstances, whereas the love of a mature believer will be less emotional and will be less stable, and it is based more, more certainly upon the truths of God's word. So faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, are two ideas that are two virtues that are frequently connected together, along with the third, which we'll see in the next verse, uh, which is hope. But let me just go through a couple of verses. Some of these I've already mentioned. I've added one more to the three we, I mentioned earlier in the message, and that's 1 Thessalonians 1.3, where in his salutation to the first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So here he connects, again, faith, hope, and love as he does in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. These three terms describe, I believe, the breadth of Christian growth and the Christian life, each one emphasizing a different aspect or a different dimension of our walk with the Lord and our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 connects faith, hope, and love in verses in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Ephesians 1.15, and Philemon chapter 5. We also have a reference, uh, we have a reference only to faith and love. And because of uh, the context of each of these epistles, I believe that this is talking not so much about justification faith and becoming a Christian, but the ongoing uh, Christian life. Now, another passage that brings in that third aspect, which is hope, is Romans chapter 5, verse 2. And in Romans chapter 5, we have Paul making application of the reality of our justification, that once a person trusts in Jesus Christ and they have received an imputation or uh, a crediting of Christ's righteousness to them, and God declares them just, the result of that is that they now have peace with God. Peace with God is related to reconciliation, but it is the application of justification in the time and the temporal experience of the believer. And so then Paul goes on to say in verse 2, through whom, uh, that is through Christ, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so here he is thinking in terms of someone who is already a believer. It is a grace in which we now stand. It is the current results of a past action, 
and we have access uh, by faith into this grace. So this is bringing faith into the uh, next level of application from faith in justifying faith to sanctifying faith. And on the basis of this, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, hope is one of those great words in relation to the Christian life. It's not the concept of sort of a um, an optimistic wish or a desire that somehow today the weather is beautiful. I hope the weather is beautiful tomorrow because I want to go fishing, uh, but we have no idea whether it will be or not. Uh, that's the way in which we use hope in English. But hope in the scriptures and hope in uh, and the meaning of the word elpis in Greek has the idea of a constant expectation of a future event. There is a sense of certainty that something will happen, not that it might happen, not that it could happen. There's, there's no sense of something being optional there, but there is a certainty there that something is going to take place, and that is the idea of hope in the Scriptures. It is a confident expectation of some future event. We see this a little more clearly in Romans 8, uh, 24, and 25. Romans 8, 24 states, For we were saved in this hope. Now, the word saved in Romans does not refer to phase one justification. Those who were here on Tuesday nights for the Roman or Thursday nights for the Roman series recognize that I've taught it time and again that the word saved or sozo, that word group in the Greek normally translated uh, saved, salvation, savior, that word group in Romans doesn't refer to entry into the Christian life, being saved from the penalty of sin or phase one, but it usually refers to phase two. There are times it refers to phase three glorification, but primarily it refers to phase two. Sometimes it refers to the entire process as God delivers us from the penalty of sin at phase one. He is saving us from the power of sin in phase two, ultimately to save us from the presence of sin in phase three. And so sometimes in, in Romans, Paul is incorporating the entire process of God's deliverance of us from sin to that perfect state of glorification in the future. And so in Romans 8.24, Paul is not talking about our salvation in terms of of sanctification, uh, in terms of justification, but sanctification. This comes at the end of a of a, a lengthy discussion on the spiritual life. In Romans chapter two, chapters one through three, Paul establishes the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the solution then? If we've all sinned, how do we ever measure up? That's chapter four where Paul talks about justification by faith. In chapter 5, the uh, application of that in terms of our peace with God. And then he concludes that, the question really comes at the beginning of chapter 6, what then, if if God has already saved us or justified us, uh, shall we continue to sin that we can have more grace? 
That is the uh, antinomian or licentious approach. Well, God's already saved us, so it doesn't matter what I do. If I'm already justified, then I can just go forward. And so Paul addresses that question in Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans 8. And this is where we get the three great chapters on the spiritual life of the believer, uh, otherwise referred to as sanctification. When we have the uh, pastor's conference coming up in uh, next week, there will be three separate papers given, three separate presentations, one on Romans 6, one on Romans 7, and one on Romans 8. Understanding those three chapters is critical to understanding what the Bible says about the believer's uh, spiritual life. And so Romans 8, 24, and 25 comes at the end of that discussion. And Paul is saying, for we were... Delivered, that is referencing to sanctification. He hasn't talked about justification since chapter, uh, chapter four. It says, for we were saved in this hope, focusing our attention forward to a future confident, a future certainty, a confident future that we have that we will be delivered and glorified. But then he adds something to it that relates faith, I mean, relates hope to faith. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Faith also is we walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. So faith is not based on sight. Hope is not based on on sight. That is one of the reasons why um, when we look at that chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, and trying to understand what it means that when the perfect comes, then the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and tongues will be done away with. There are many people who think that when the perfect comes, that's when Jesus Christ returns, or that's when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. But what Paul says at the conclusion there is that now in this age, faith, hope, and love abide. But faith is not going to be part of our experience in glorification, because then we will be walking by sight and not by faith. Hope will not be part of our experience after glorification because, according to Romans 8.24, hope is not by sight either. So that tells us necessarily that whatever is going on in 1 Corinthians 13.8, it cannot possibly be looking forward to the return of Christ at some point in the present. It's talking about uh, something that would take place here because after the perfect comes, uh, those gifts cease, but faith, hope, and love will continue. They won't continue after Jesus returns. They won't continue after we're face-to-face with the Lord. So therefore, the distinction that's made there in 1 Corinthians 13 must have to do with some event in time or in history that brings a cessation to knowledge and prophecy, that is the spiritual gifts of knowledge and prophecy in tongues. So hope is not seen. Paul says hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? It's not an expectation if you have it, is his point. It is something that you expect, something that, you ha- that hasn't arrived yet. Verse 25, he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, Uh, We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Hope implies looking forward to something and waiting for something with a confident expectation that it will arrive. In Romans 15, verse 13, we read, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace 
in believing. And actually, this is an interesting phrase here. Uh, in the English, it's translated as if it's a participle, but actually, it is more of a, uh, it's a, it's an infinitive in the Greek, and it's used more like a noun, and should be understood that God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace by faith, by what you believe, that you may abound in hope, confident expectation, by, once again, the means of the spiritual life is the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the passage I've mentioned twice already, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. When Paul writes this and says, and now, he uses uh, one of two Greek words for now. The other Greek word is used in the previous verse where he, a couple of verses earlier where he says, but now we see through a, a glass darkly. And there he uses the synonym. These words many times are interchangeable, but when those two different Greek words are used in the same context, the first of them refers to the immediate present right now, today, at this time. And the Second now refers to generally now during this broader time frame. And that fits very well with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now in this present period, in this pre-canon apostolic period, when we don't have a complete canon or complete revelation, we need the spiritual gift of knowledge and the spiritual gift of prophecy. These other gifts are operational now in this immediate time during this pre-canon period, but a time will come when they will cease, when the perfect comes. That is the completed canon of Scripture. And we're no longer going to be, it's no longer going to be necessary for us to have someone with the gift of prophecy or with the gift of knowledge because they will cease, and then he says, but now in a broader sense, now during this entire dispensation of the church age, what will continue is not knowledge, that ceases, not prophecy, that ceases, not tongues, that will be done away, but now abide faith, hope, and love. That's what continues. These are the three primary virtues then of the Christian life. And so this is what Paul emphasizes in his prayers. He is thankful for their, uh, because they have heard of their faith in Christ. Now it's an interesting phrase that is used there for, for in Christ. It is the Greek preposition in, en, which in many places has the idea of indicating means or instrumentality, which is the idea of dependence on something. But many other times it refers to being in a certain location. Grammarians call it uh, in, in the sphere of something. Paul uses the phrase in Christ with that preposition to refer to our positional possessions, what we have because we have been saved, what God gave us at the instant of salvation that are, that's our real legal possession now as a new member of the family of God and the child of God. So he says here, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. 
And so it's, it, it could be spherical because that's how Paul normally uses that phrase, in Christ. And there it would refer to a positional idea, but I don't think that's what he's talking about either. I think what he's talking about here is the expression of our faith toward uh, Jesus Christ in our ongoing progression, our own ongoing walk, uh, abiding in Christ, uh, walking by the light, walking uh, by the Spirit. So... When we think about faith, we really see faith in terms of two aspects. The first is uh, what we can call justification faith. That is, our faith uh, in the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, at which time we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter uh, 4. Uh, verse, verses 2 and 3, and I got 2 in there, but not 3. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, we read, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3 says, quoting Genesis 15:7, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or imputed to him, for righteousness. So that refers to justification faith. It is our initial faith in the gospel, our faith in Christ. At that instant, God imputes to us or credits to our account the righteousness of Christ, and we're declared just because, not because of what we've done, but because of the per- we now possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is stated again in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So this is justification faith. But then the apostle goes on to talk about Faith in terms of the spiritual life, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, this doesn't exclude obedience. This doesn't exclude or somehow bring in a contradiction between doing certain things that are part of the spiritual life. For example, there's a multitude of commands in Scripture from everything from giving to praying to uh, various different, uh, different ethical mandates uh, all of these are, the application of them is all related to faith. We're trusting in God's word, and because we trust that, we do that. First uh, John 1, 9 falls into that category. Uh, there have been some who said, well, we don't really need to confess our sins because we just can trust God for it. That is a, a inherent in a position that we'll learn about next week at the conference called uh, Keswick Theology. And uh, it was just a belief that God would uh, cleanse us from sin, and there was no uh, necessity of confession. And uh, there have been some who have said, well, all we need to do is just walk by faith. Or Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You you didn't need to confess sin to be saved. You don't need to confess sin to uh, walk in the Christian life, but that misses the point. If we confess our sin 
It is because we believe the truth of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that that is true, so we do what it says to do. Scripture says pray without ceasing. We believe that to be true, so we pray without ceasing. We're to give thanks in all things, so we believe that is true, so we apply it and do it. It is is not a violation of the principle of faith to do what Scripture says to do. In fact, it is the application of the faith. So, uh, again, looking at the uh, Colossians 2.7, we are to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with Thanksgiving again. So this emphasis uh, for us is on gratitude. Gratitude is uh, directly proportional to our appreciation to God for his grace in our lives. So we are to walk by faith and not by sight. So Paul says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, he's not, he, he could include in that their justification faith, but he's probably emphasizing more their ongoing uh, walk in faith. And second, he says, and of your love for all the saints. That is the application of love based on uh, passages such as John 13, 34, and 35, when Jesus said, uh, if you are my disciples, people will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And he said, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And this love is therefore a mark of the believer. It is unique to Christians, this kind of love. There is a love that is imitated by unbelievers, but this is a love that is unique and distinct and is generated in the life of the believer by the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, we're told to walk by means of the Spirit. And then in Galatians 5.20, uh, one and following, where we're told about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, singular noun, includes all of these. The first one in the list is love. And so it is uniquely a product of God, the Holy Spirit, in our life. And then in verse 5, uh, Paul writes, because of the hope which is laid up for you. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey. There are those who believe that the because here goes back to the main verb. We give thanks because of the hope which is laid up uh, for you in heaven. And that is probably not the best way to understand this. It is better to understand that this uh, phrase here is the motivation for their faith in Christ Jesus, their ongoing walk, and their love uh, for all the saints. And what motivates that is their understanding of their destiny. We talked about hope many times in the sense of living today in light of eternity, not being willing to sacrifice the future on the altar of the present, and that understanding what our hope is in the future, that this relates to inheritance, which is brought into this passage as well, uh, that we focus on our future inheritance, and therefore that in turn motivates us to spiritual growth, and that in turn produces uh, love for all the saints. So Paul is thankful for their faith and their love because it's motivated by their hope, 
which is their confident expectation. Hope here stands for their future rewards, which are laid up for you in heaven, a term that relates also to our inheritance, which is reserved for us in heaven, of which you heard before, he states, in the word of truth of the gospel. So part of his use of the word gospel here is not just what you need to know or believe in order to avoid eternal punishment, but it's that broader use of the word gospel in terms of all that has been supplied and provided for us. And the gospel essentially is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, but it goes beyond that because it involves all that we are given at salvation by God that we are to then use and exploit in terms of spiritual growth so that we can then fulfill the destiny that God has for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back next time and we'll add some more to that, develop that idea related to inheritance. Since we're having our uh, congregational meeting this morning, we will go ahead and uh, stop here uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we have your word that clearly tells us who we are, what our problem is, and what the solution is. We're thankful for the gospel, not just the narrow gospel, which is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the entire gospel message that gives us the message of what our new life in Christ is and how that is to be uh, nourished and sustained and how we are to grow spiritually. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uh, not sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. At that time that he was hanging on the cross, between noon and 3 p.m., when darkness covered Golgotha. It was then that God the Father imputed to Jesus Christ the sin of the world, and he bore in his own body on the tree our punishment, so that sin was paid for, at the end of which he cried out, To tell us die, it is finished. And so the payment for your sin is complete, it is finished, And all that is required is that you believe that Jesus died for you. And at that instant, God the Father knows what you have believed, what you're trusting in. And at that instant, he imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, and you are justified, and he regenerates you and gives you new life in Christ. And now the issue is, what will we do with this new life? How will we grow? Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word and that we grow by means of your word and by means of truth. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who makes these truths real to us and applies them in our life in a way that produces spiritual growth and spiritual development. And we pray that you would, uh, that God, the Holy Spirit, would make the things that we've studied today very real to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.